Hallelujah. Well, we'll carry on with this session. We're talking about uh, was Jesus really poor? Was Jesus really poor? Or we could entitle it. tells you he wasn't poor. When they crucified him, they very carefully took his as a garment on because they're a one piece garment. We don't see him with it. Well, we're, we're coming to that. <laughs> but you were, you're on the right track there. Sure. Yeah. You could entitle this What They Never Told You in Church. Or was Jesus really poor? So we've come down to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to see that Jesus' ministry was not a small operation. Luke 8, verse 1. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and every village. You can underline that if you want to. Every city and every village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So this gives us an idea of the scope of Jesus' ministry. Every city and every village. Jesus had a team with him. Here it says the twelve were with him. Uh, we also saw over in John where he sent out advanced teams to gather up people and, and let people know that he was coming to town and when he was going to be there and where he was going to be and what time they were going to meet. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out another 70 people. So, this was not a little organization. He had at least 80-something people on his staff that we know about. Uh, So, maybe not quite that many. Even, say, 25, 40, maybe full-time staff with him and some of their families. But we do know from Luke 10, he sent out another 70 besides the 12. Uh, Let's look look at Luke 22. Luke 22, 35. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? So Jesus is saying, I told you to go out, don't take a purse with you, don't, you know, don't take writing material, don't take extra pair of shoes, you know, don't take all these things with you. And he says, Did you lack for anything? You know, were you in need? And what did they say? They said, no. They said, nothing. 
What poor man could run an organization of this size and meet the needs of these people and their families? He didn't always require money. We know uh, he fed the 5,000 and their families. How many poor people could feed 5,000 men and their families? In that case, it didn't require any money. But that's all part of prosperity is when you don't have money or you don't need money, you whatever the need is, you can still meet the need. Jesus could have, I believe he could have used money, but that wasn't his plan for that day. But that's the definition of prosperity, is having enough to meet the needs of people spiritually, physically, financially, whatever the need is, having more than enough to meet the need. And if it requires money, we have it. But if it doesn't, it doesn't, may not always require money to meet somebody's need. You know, somebody needs to get saved, you know how to lead them to the Lord. Somebody needs healing, you know how to pray for them to get healed. That's all of prosperity. That's part of being a prosperous person, is, is having an abundance of whatever it takes to meet the needs of people. And in, in, in that sense, Jesus was the most prosperous man that ever walked the earth. So he wasn't a poor man, but he didn't always need money to do what God called him to do. But it, I believe if he did have money, if he did need money, he had it. He, he, he met the needs of the people on his staff, and plus some of their families. So what poor man could have done that? If there was ever anyone on the face of the earth that qualified to be prosperous, spirit, soul, body, and financially, it was Jesus. He was the seed of Abraham. And that's what, you know, Galatians 3 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Well, that seed was Jesus. Seed is singular. That was Jesus. So to Abraham and Jesus... When God spoke to Abraham, he was also speaking to Jesus all those thousands of years in advance. So the same promise God made to Abraham, he made to Jesus. Now, in verse 29 of Galatians 3, it includes us. It says, and if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So because of our union with Jesus through the new birth, we become partakers of the blessing of Abraham, just like Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus perfectly kept God's word, and he understood the laws that govern prosperity. Let's turn to John chapter 12. <clears throat> Let's just start at verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. 
There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Um, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. This tells us that Judas was the treasure of Jesus' ministry. You don't need a treasure to keep up with petty cash. If Jesus was just operating on a shoestring and petty cash and living from handouts from one town to another, he would not need a treasurer. An organization that's got enough money flowing through it to have a thief stealing out of it and nobody even knows the money's gone. There had to be enough money flowing through there you know, a significant amount that Judas was stealing out of it and nobody ever missed it. I mean, Jesus knew he was doing it. By the Spirit, Jesus knew he was doing it. But you don't need a treasure to keep up with petty cash. Jesus had a treasure in his ministry. So there was enough money flowing through his ministry that the treasure was embezzling money for his own personal use and it never slowed down Jesus' operation. Did Jesus allow Judas to remain treasure because he approved of theft? No. He proved that even with a corrupt treasure who was a thief, God would give him more than enough as long as he stayed in his will. Now, let's look uh, at Luke chapter 8 again. We were just over there. Uh, a few minutes ago. Go back to Luke 8. And we're we're going to see that Jesus had wealthy friends and associations who supported his ministry financially. Uh, Jesus uh, ministered to the poor, but he did not consider himself to be poor. In other words, he didn't put himself in the category with the poor financially. Because you remember when he said, uh, the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. So Jesus did not identify himself in the poor category. Now Luke 8 uh, Uh, 1 to 3, it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and every village, this was the scope of Jesus' ministry, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, 
and many others, underlying the word, many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. Now the word substance here in the Greek refers to goods, possessions, or property. So when it says they ministered to Jesus of their substance, it's talking about material possessions and wealth. This is not spiritual substance, okay? This is not spiritualizing everything. This is literal uh, goods, possessions, and property, wealth, assets. This word was used to describe individuals of great wealth who possessed large fortunes or enormous estates. These women that followed Jesus, and I mean loyally followed Jesus, were wealthy women. This Greek phrase that says, out of their substance, it actually, this says, um, ministered unto him of their substance. In the Greek it actually says, out of their substance. And this implies these very wealthy women may have donated finances out of the income they earned on the properties they owned. So these, uh, you know, were wealthy women who owned property, uh, maybe commercial property or, or residential property, and they earned an income on these properties. Now the first woman mentioned that we recognize by name is Mary Magdalene. Uh, it says, uh, first of all, there were certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And, but Mary Magdalene is uh, the, the one that we recognize by name. Tales have been told about her life as a prostitute before Jesus delivered her from demons. But there is no New Testament source that records Mary Magdalene as a former prostitute. But she was so thankful for what Jesus had done for her that she remained committed to him right to the end of his earthly ministry. We know she was at the cross with him. We know she, was, she and a couple of these other women were the first ones to his tomb on resurrection morning. So she was uh, totally, completely loyal to Jesus right to the very end. She was so, her life was so impacted by uh, what he did for her and her deliverance from demon possession uh, that she was so thankful to him. She remained committed to him right to the end. And obviously she was also a wealthy woman who used her money to support Jesus' ministry. Now let's look at the next woman mentioned here, Joanna the wife of Cusa. This man, Cusa, was the chief manager of Herod's personal fortune and his financial advisor. Some suggest that he could be the nobleman of John chapter 4 whose son was healed by Jesus. If that was the case, then it's easy to see how Joanna would have been grateful to Jesus for saving her child's life and would have wanted to use her fortune 
to enable others to receive the same touch from God. If her son was not the one healed in John 4, somehow Jesus had impacted her life in some way that moved her to support his ministry financially. She was also with Mary Magdalene, who discovered the empty tomb after Jesus' resurrection in Luke chapter 24.10. So she was also faithful to Jesus to the very end. So uh, Jesus had obviously impacted these women's lives in a very dramatic way that caused them to want to uh, support his ministry financially and enable others to receive the same touch from God. The other woman here, Susanna, we have no other record of this woman in the New Testament. We only know that she was among these wealthy women who used her personal finances to support Jesus' ministry. And then it says, many others, besides these women, there were many others which ministered unto him of their substance or their property, wealth, possessions. In the Greek, this phrase, many others, means very many or a great quantity of other people who supported Jesus on a regular basis with their personal finances. So Jesus wasn't operating on a shoestring. He, had, he, was, he didn't have you know, some little rinky-dink ministry. We've seen... He went to every city, every village. He had a staff of 12, plus some of their families. Plus he sent another 70 out. And he uh, had the resources to take care of all these people. He did not roam from village to village and house to house begging for a handout like religion has taught. Uh, other wealthy people who were close associations with Jesus was Joseph of Arimathea and Zacchaeus and Luke 19. Let's just turn over there to Luke 19. When I say the name Zacchaeus, what do you normally think about? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? You, you must not have gone to Sunday school, grown up in Sunday school. I grew up in Sunday school, and, you know, they tell you the Bible stories, and they, what I grew up believing and remembering about Zacchaeus is he was a very little man. He was a very little man, and that's why he climbed up in the sycamore tree, so he could see Jesus. But... Let's look at, uh, <clears throat> let's see where we are here. Uh, okay, verse 1, Luke 19, 1. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans. And he was short. Is that what it says? It says, and he was rich. He was rich. That's something else they never told us in church. 
Zacchaeus was just as rich as he was short. <laughs> but they never told us that he was rich. They just told us he was short and he had to climb up in a tree to see Jesus. But he was rich. And Jesus said, come down because I'm coming to your house. And then Zacchaeus says, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor and I've taken anything away from any man by false accusation. I restore them fourfold. So he was another man impacted by the ministry of Jesus and another wealthy acquaintance of Jesus. Now, we'll turn to John 19 and we'll, uh, we'll look at what Peter referred to earlier. about the way Jesus dressed. We see, you know, what we think and what we believe are affected by observations, teaching, and experience. So that's, that's those thorns and stones that have been taught to us on in previous days that have set our mind you know on a course um, to see Jesus as a poor person and we see religious paintings and all these kind of things add to the image and impression we have of Jesus but we're getting our we're getting a new image from the Word of God about Jesus amen and he was not a poor preacher John 19, 23. Now this is when uh, Jesus went to the cross. And 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, He became poor that we might be made rich. This is when Jesus became poor for us, when He went to the cross. In that sense, He became poor for us. Matthew 19.23 Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Now notice, it says, His coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. This identified the quality of the garment. It didn't come off the rack in Marks and Spencer or Next or, you know, even though those are nice clothes. But what I'm saying is it didn't come off the rack. It was made by Savile Row in London. This was like a bespoke tailored garment worn by wealthy merchants in Jesus' day. I'm trying to think of that other shirt maker in London. German? Something German? Uh, forgot the name of it. There's a very well-known tailored shirt maker in London. Something German? Oh, German something? Anyway, tailor-made clothes. And this was the kind of garment Jesus was wearing. 
worn by kings and rich merchants of his day. Now some will say, oh, but Jesus wasn't wearing his clothes to the cross when he went to the cross because when the Roman soldiers had their mock trial before he went to the cross, they put on these purple, kingly, uh, royal robes on him and the crown of thorns and all this. Well, let's turn over to Mark chapter 15. It is true, they did take his clothes off of him and they did put some other clothes on him at that point. Mark 15, verse 16. Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. So they put Jesus' own clothes back on him before he went to the cross. So when he went to the cross, he was wearing his own clothes. He was wearing the, the garment without seam. And that's why the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus, they, they were assigned to that detail. These Roman soldiers, they crucified people for a living. I mean, that was their job. That's what they were paid to do, was to crucify people. And they had seen plenty of crucifixions, and they'd seen plenty of clothes worn by people. And they recognized that these were not store-bought clothes off the rack from Marks and Spencer that Jesus was wearing. They recognized the quality of these clothes, and that's why they did not tear them up. They didn't, you know, uh, do any damage to them. And that's why they cast lots to see who would get it. Because they recognize this is a valuable garment and we're not tearing this one up. And they cast lots to see who was going to get it. Now, in, let's look at, also, we'll look at another scripture to confirm this. John 19. John's account of the crucifixion. John 19, 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments. So underline the word, his garments. Jesus was wearing his clothes without um, seeing. 
and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Uh, these were designer clothes, okay? And the Roman soldiers recognized that, and that's why they cast lots to see who would get it. It says he was wearing his garments. Verse 24. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. This was a, a prophecy um, from Psalm 22. Uh, and Jesus referred to my raiment and my vesture. In other words, my clothes. So Jesus was wearing uh, his own clothes, and they were designer clothes uh, well, worn by wealthy kings and merchants in his day. Jesus was a king, and he dressed like a king. Jesus did not come to earth to build a financial empire, but for the culture and the economy of his day, he had more than enough and definitely was not poor. Why do you need to know that? Because until you know that Jesus was prosperous, you won't be either. You may have his kindness, you may have his gentleness, you may have his mercy and all of his other attributes, but you won't have his prosperity. Obedience equals prosperity. We've already looked at that in the first session where we looked at some of the scriptures in uh, Proverbs that prosperity is uh, a result of obedience to God. And if for no other reason, this is why Jesus could not have been poor. Because uh, we saw in Galatians 3, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So everything God promised Abraham, he also promised Jesus. And we are included in that promise because Galatians 3.29 says, And if ye be Christ, are ye Abraham's seed? and heirs according to the promise. We've already looked at scripture that tells us that poverty, lack, and insufficiency is a penalty for violating spiritual principles in God's word. We've already seen in Deuteronomy 28 that the curse is a result of disobedience and the blessings of God and a prosperous life are the result of obedience. So if there's anybody that ever walked the earth that qualified to for the blessings and the prosperity of God, it was Jesus. He perfectly kept God's word. He perfectly had no sin. He left, led a perf, perfect life before God. Uh, in Joshua 1, 7-8, God promised to reward Joshua's obedience. In 2 Chronicles 26, 5, God made Uzziah to prosper as long as he sought the Lord. 
In 2 Chronicles 31, God rewarded Hezekiah with prosperity. So if God abundantly blessed covenant men of the Old Testament and every sphere of life who could not keep the covenant perfectly and could not walk perfectly and upright before God, how much more did Jesus qualify? Jesus perfectly pleased the Father. We've already looked at Psalm 35:27 that says God takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. If Jesus doesn't qualify as an obedient servant, nobody does. But he did qualify as an obedient servant. Therefore, he had to be prosperous. He had to come under that blessing of Abraham. He was the seed of Abraham. He was a tither. If anyone ever lived under an open heaven, it was Jesus. Let's turn to John 13. John 13. Verse 29. Now this is the Last Supper. Uh, verse 26 says, And Jesus answered, uh, they were talking about who it was that was going to betray him. And he says, He it is to whom I shall give a salt when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the salt, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the salt, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, or because Judas was the treasurer, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things that you have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So when Jesus said to Judas, That that thou doest, do quickly. The other disciples did not realize that Jesus was referring to his betrayal. They, all the other disciples thought that because Judas was the treasurer, they assumed Jesus had sent him out to buy food or to give to the poor. So Jesus must have had such a reputation for giving to the poor and to giving to other people on such a regular basis that the disciples automatically assumed that's what Jesus had sent Judas out to do, was to give to the poor or to give to a particular poor uh, area or person. So Jesus must have had a reputation among the disciples for giving to the poor on a regular basis. For Jesus to have lived in lack and insufficiency would have been a direct violation of God's promise to Abraham to establish his covenant with Abraham's seed. Jesus is our example. It's not enough to know that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and other godly, obedient men were prosperous in the Old Testament. We have to look at the pattern son, the seed of Abraham, 
And we have to see that he had finances. And when we see that he had finances, we'll understand that we're supposed to have finances. Amen? Hallelujah. Is that helpful in getting a new image on Jesus? Amen? And uh, digging up these thorns and stones that have uh, been hiding the, the truth, been blinding and clouding this issue, uh, and trying to paint an image of Jesus as a poor homeless evangelist. So we dug out these thorns and stones, and we're allowing the Word of God to go in there and take root and establish a new image on just who we are following and just who we are serving. Amen? Now let's look, uh, <clears throat> let's look for a few minutes about priorities. Priorities. God's law of prosperity uh, we need to look at the priorities in order for God's law of prosperity to work in our life. Now, prosperity is not just getting a lot of money and living like the devil. It takes a high quality of holy living to walk in the God kind of prosperity. And that's what we're talking about. Now, there's a difference between prosperity and materialism. And this is what religion does not understand. Religion confuses biblical prosperity with materialism. Biblical prosperity is the ability to use the power of God to meet the needs of mankind, whether those needs are spiritual, mental, physical, or financial. And Jesus did exactly that in his ministry on earth. He met the needs of people on every level. Materialism is using money and material possessions to try to meet a spiritual need in your life. It's not worshiping money or things, but gathering money and things for the purpose of self-worship. That's not what I'm teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> We've seen in the Word that God is not opposed to His people being wealthy. He is opposed to them being covetous. Um, let me just check a scripture here. Uh, Colossians 3, 5 says, Mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So this says covetousness is idolatry. And Jesus preached against 
covetousness. He did not preach against abundance and wealth and the blessings of God. He preached against covetousness. <clears throat> Abraham, Solomon, David were not seeking to be rich. But God made them rich. They were seeking God. And God made them rich. God made them rich because they put Him and His Word first place in their heart. And their heart was toward God. Even though they were not perfect and they made mistakes, their heart was toward God. And God blessed them. Solomon in 1 Chronicles 1 asked for wisdom and knowledge. But God gave him, in addition to that, riches and wealth. The world's philosophy says, get all you can, can all you get, and guard the can. That's, that's the way we're, the world gathers up money and wealth and riches and guard it, protect it. Don't let anybody near it. But in our text scripture in Matthew 6.33, where Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you, Jesus put money and things in their right perspective. He didn't say, don't have them. He didn't say, it'll ruin you. He didn't say, stay away from money and riches. He just said, keep them in their right Priority. God first, and other these, these other things will be added to you. He said, beware of covetousness. You can have money and serve God, but you can't serve money and serve God. I'm going to say that again. You can have money and serve God, but you can't serve money and God. And that's what Jesus was preaching. Now, religion takes all this out of context, you know, and, and uh, they say, well, uh, a godly person can't be rich. Only the, only the wicked can be rich. Well, that's, if that's not deception of riches, I don't know what is. That's deception to think that only a sinner can have wealth. But a godly, obedient person cannot be now that's about as backward as you can get. That's just about as backward as you can get. <clears throat> now if you just want to be rich without serving God, you're out of the ball game. Okay? That's what you call a red card. Okay? <laughs> you get a red card for that. You get sent out of the game. You disqualify yourself. If you trust in your money and possessions... When God tells you to give a large amount, you will give a small amount. Now, are you in Colossians still? Colossians, okay. Look at uh, chapter 3 there, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, 
not on things on the earth. So, what is the direction of your affection? You set your mind on things above and you refuse to allow money or possessions to control your thinking. He didn't say you can't have it. He didn't say it will ruin you. He didn't say my people ought to do without and live in poverty, lack, and insufficiency while the ungodly are controlling all the money. That is not what Jesus preached. That's not what Paul preached. That's what religion, religious tradition teaches. This is where the rich young ruler missed it. You set your mind on things above and you refuse to allow money or possessions to control your thinking. The rich young ruler was trusting in his money and not in God. We've always thought that Jesus was being cruel to this man, asking him to sell his land or sell all that he had and give it away and not to give him anything in return. But God will never do that. He's not stingy or mean. Uh, if you, I guess if you've been watching the Believer's Voice of Victory the last couple of weeks, uh, I guess you heard Billy Brim talking about Psalm 73 where she said God is only good. Yeah. Remember her saying that? It, in the Hebrew Psalm it says, yeah, Psalm 73. It says God is only good. He's only good. He can't be anything else. He's only good. So God is only good. And he, uh, He's not stingy or mean. And when God asks you to give, He's not... He's not trying to make you worse off. He's trying to move you up into a better place. When Jesus said to the rich young ruler, one thing thou lackest, what he was talking about was the giving aspect, the finances. This man had already said uh, he kept the word of God from a youth, from his youth. So now we know how he got his wealth from, from keeping the word of God. Jesus, when he said one thing you lack, he's referring to the giving side of his money. He, he had never given it. He had just made it. You know, he had made money, but he had never given it. He had never used it to be a blessing. So he was trusting in his money, and it was controlling him. So Jesus was not trying to make him go broke. He was trying to get him more money, and he was trying to break this stronghold of trusting in it. Now, not only did he pass up a better financial position, but I believe Jesus was offering him apostleship. When he said to the rich young ruler, come and follow me. Now, the only other people Jesus ever said, come and follow me. Who, who, who were the only other people Jesus ever said that to? The disciples. The twelve disciples. That's the only other people He ever said, come and follow Me. And that's what He said to the rich young ruler. Now, there's a, you know, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like there's a good possibility Jesus is on the lookout for a new treasure to replace Judas. 
He already knows he's got a thief for a treasure. And he's on the lookout for a godly man who knows the Word of God, who has money uh, to take over as treasure. But he failed the test because he let his money control him. And it's very possible that he walked away from a position of being disciple. Now I've heard Brother Copeland say his own opinion. He believes this man possibly came back one day in the future and he, he realized where he goofed up. And it's possible he did come back and perhaps serve Jesus in some capacity. We know he didn't take Judas' place. But, uh, you know, he, he, he says he believes that this man came to his senses somewhere along the line. I've heard other Bible teachers uh, say that they believe this man could have been Barnabas. Uh, I haven't studied that out. Apparently they, they must have done some study that, uh, you know, led them to think perhaps it could have been Barnabas. If that's the case... He, you know, he was an associate of Paul, and he was a very wealthy man, if it was him. I'm not saying it was him. But some Bible, you know, students and uh, scholars and teachers have just uh, put that forth as a possibility. There's something there that, that caused them to believe there was a connection, perhaps, uh, between Barnabas and the rich young ruler. Um, I think we're going to stop there. I'll just, just finish off with this. It has always been God's will for His people to prosper. We are at the end of an age and there's still a lot of work to be done in the kingdom of God. There's still a lot of lost people God wants to reach. It is a necessity that we prosper. It's not just the will of God that we prosper. I don't believe. It's just His will. I believe it's a necessity. God needs us to prosper. God wants us to be a banker for Him and be part of financing the end time harvest. And it's going to take a whole lot more money than Christians currently have in their control. When you invest in God's business through your faithfulness and obedience in the area of finances, He's going to get involved in your business. And the quality of your life is going to increase dramatically. And I think all of us here could honestly say from the time we began to hear God's desire and God's ways of prospering us and we began to act on that word and we began to put into practice His principles, how many of us could honestly say our lives spiritually, mentally, physically, financially have dramatically improved? And I know... We can all say that. Amen? Hallelujah.